But we're actually going to start this morning with a bit of a game. Here's how it's going to work. It's a bit of a who am I kind of game. Uh, I'm going to have some pictures of well-known people up on the screen, and it's your job to guess who they are. Only these pictures are going to be blocked out. And so slowly I'll reveal more parts of the picture to help you work it out who it is. Uh, but if at any time you think you know who it is, shout it out from where you are, okay? So here we go, the first one. Who is this? Any ideas? It's tricky. That's... Okay, I'll show you a bit more. This might help. Looks a bit like a cricket player. Not David Warner. Plays for Melbourne Stars. Shane Warne. Okay, here's the next one. Oh, Kate is the one I'm looking for. It's Kate Middleton. Okay, last one. This is the great one. Okay, tricky ones. Not Tiger Woods. Not me. <laughs> it's Wayne Connor. <laughs> That's his year 12 photo. <laughs> well, you know, today's passage is a little bit like that game. Uh, it's all about trying to work out who Jesus is. Uh, there's guessing, there's questioning, there's even some hints as to who he is until finally Peter works it out. It's confusion followed by clarity. So let's get into today's passage and let's see where all this confusion begins. Uh, Come with me, chapter 9, verse 1. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So following the spectacular events of chapter 8, where Jesus himself cast out demons and healed disease, Jesus now calls his 12 closest friends together and he gives them power and authority to do the same. He sends them on to proclaim the good news of the kingdom with no money or bread or or anything with them. However, if Jesus... He must be someone special if he can pass on the power to heal the sick and cast out demons. It's as though he's duplicating himself to get the word out that he's arrived, sending his disciples to do what they had been watching him do. And so it's no wonder people are trying to work out just who he is. And word gets around and it even makes it back to Herod. And when Herod hears about this, he is very confused. Have a look down in verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed, because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. Now this was Herod Antipas, son of Herod the Great, ruler over Galilee. Someone was sending out people with great authority and even worse, speaking of a new kingdom. 
To a Roman ruler, this was not good news. But as Herod goes looking for information as to who it is, he only gets more confused because the crowds have got no idea. They're thinking maybe Elijah, another prophet, or or John, who Herod himself had just beheaded. Confusion reigns as Herod asks the question, who then is this I hear such things about? But meanwhile, the 12 return and we get a bit of a look at the power of Jesus, which just confuses everyone even more. Have a look in verse 10. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. So the twelve get back from their tour of Galilee, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and, and Jesus, he takes them to a remote little village for a break. But that's not what they get, because the crowds, they find out about it, and they come running after them, desperate to get a look at Jesus and to try and work out who he is. Now Jesus at this point, he could have said, go away, you know, we've been working hard, give us a break, give us some rest, we're tired. But no, he doesn't. He welcomes them. And he continues on just as the twelve had been doing, teaching about the kingdom of God and healing people. Uh, It's a great image of the compassion of Jesus. Now when you think about this crowd, I don't want you to think of 10 people or 20 people or even 100. There was 5,000 men there, which doesn't even include the women and children. Uh, imagine something like a Rana Mall at Christmas time. You know, people everywhere pushing their trolleys through the packed aisles of Woolworths, waiting ages to get to the checkout. You know, just got people everywhere. And, and you might think that's a pretty big crowd, and for Dubbo, that's pretty big. But if you multiply that by, say, five, well, you, you're starting to get close. This is a big crowd. And so Jesus is teaching and healing well into the afternoon. So much so that the disciples are exhausted and wanting to send the crowd away. Which is when Jesus once again shows us his power. Have a look at verse 12. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging. Because we are here in a remote place. We are in a remote place here. He replied, You give them something to eat. They answered, We only have five loaves of bread and two fish. Unless you go and buy food for all the crowd, about 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, Make them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down. Taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. This was a fantastic display of Jesus' power. You know, talk of the kingdom of God, healing people, and now this, feeding over 5,000 people with just five loaves and two fish. Who exactly is he? Well, the crowd watching on would have been forgiven for thinking that it was Moses back from the dead. This event is meant to be ringing reminders of when Moses and the tribes of Israel sat camped in the desert in groups of fifties and how God sent manna from heaven to feed them. 
Jesus' miracle has several similarities, so is he really Moses? Well, it's confusion followed by clarity. So let's keep reading as we get closer to our moment of clarity. Verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. So the crowds still haven't worked it out. And remember, that was the same answer that Herod got earlier on. And so Jesus asks his disciples directly, the ones who'd been close by, seeing everything that Jesus said and did. Have they worked it out? Verse 20, what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. Peter gets it exactly right. Jesus is far more important than John, far more important than Elijah or Moses or any other prophet. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah of God. Now, Christ, it's, it's his title. It's not his last name. Uh, Christ means to be the anointed one or chosen one. So Jesus is the chosen one of God. He's God's king. Remember, the disciples have been out proclaiming the kingdom of God. Well, Jesus is the king of that kingdom, the one who will lead God's people and rule over them. And I wonder how you would have answered that question. If Jesus came to you right now and asked, what about you? Who do you say I am? What would you answer? Do you think Jesus is just a nice guy or a, a life coach or some irrelevant historical character or just a fake made-up person? Who do you think Jesus is? Or do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? But if so, does your life show that? Well, Peter declares Jesus is the Christ and that's what he is. And now for the, the disciples, that would have been a, a wonderful moment. All this time following and watching Jesus, seeing him heal the sick and cast out demons and control nature, to hear that Jesus really was the promised king was great news. He's the one that Jews have been waiting for, which makes the next sentence feel very jerky. Have a look at verse 21. Jesus strictly warned them, not to tell this to anyone. What? Isn't this the best news ever? Why shouldn't they go shouting it from the rooftops? Well, Jesus could see that they knew his title, but not his role. They, they understood what it meant in theory, but didn't know what it meant in practice. So Jesus doesn't want them running around reporting that he's the Messiah if they don't understand what it really means. And so Jesus very clearly tells them what it means for him to be the Christ. In verse 22, he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus is not a king who had come to defeat the Romans. He is a king who has come to sacrifice himself in order to take away our sin. Now, growing up, I loved hearing the stories of King Arthur. 
you know, uh, King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, uh, carrying around the great sword Excalibur to fight off evil and big dragons, you know, with Lady Guinevere, his queen, by his side. Uh, there's lots of great epic stories about King Arthur. But he's the sort of king who would gather up his knights, jump on his horse and ride out to defeat that invading army. And perhaps that was the kind of king the disciples wanted. But Jesus tells them that to be the Christ means he has to suffer and die and be raised again. He's not going to have a golden crown on his head, a beautiful queen at his side, a long sword in his hand, or be riding on a white stallion. No, no, he's going to have a crown of thorns on his head, murderous thieves by his side, a long nail in his hand, and be hanging on a wooden cross. Because that's what it means to be the Christ. That's who Jesus is. The, the disciples could hardly believe it. But by giving up his life, Jesus saves us. His death on the cross defeats our greatest enemy. Not any army, but rather Satan and our sin. Because our sin is a big problem. Our sin, it's all the times when we ignore God or reject him or try and run life on our own. All the times we act selfishly, doing what we want to do, thinking that we know better. Those are the things that make God angry with us, and they actually create a barrier between us and God. But in his great love, God sent Jesus as the Christ to die on the cross for us. He deals with our sin, forgiving each and every one of our wrongs. It's a victory far greater than any battle against an army. This is the king of the new kingdom. But if you want to be part of this new kingdom, if you want to be part of God's kingdom, if you want to follow this king, well, it isn't going to be glamorous. It isn't going to be easy. Have a look at what Jesus says it means to be part of God's kingdom. In verse 23. Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. And take up his cross daily and follow me. See, when we believe that Jesus is the Christ, we embrace his dying on the cross for us. But when we believe Jesus is the Christ, we also accept the reality of a cross for ourselves. Uh, this is what it means to be part of God's kingdom. Jesus is the king, and so everyone else falls into the background. And he describes what that looks like in two ways. First, it means self-denial. When we follow Christ, we now live for him in everything, not ourselves. We deny the need to control our life. We deny the desire to be selfish. We deny our want to make decisions based on what's best for us. We're to die to self and live for Christ. That's what he wants from his disciples. The second thing to do if we want to follow Jesus Christ is to carry our cross. Because as we follow a crucified king, the Christ who suffered, we also should expect to suffer. But when Jesus says, carry your cross here, he's not talking about the general suffering that we're all going to face, like being sick or having a bad job or a hard exam. 
No, no, he's speaking of the times when we will suffer for the sake of Christ. When people purposefully make our life hard or, or drag you down for being a Christian. When people tease us or insult us or exclude us for being a Christian. That is carrying your cross. And that's what Jesus calls us to do. And you put those two things together and it means losing your life for Christ. But you know if you do that, if you lose your life for Christ, well then you'll save it. Have a look in verse 24. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. See, Jesus, he's the king, and so our whole life is now about unashamedly serving him. The logic here is this. Keepers are losers, but losers are keepers. You get that? Keepers are losers. Losers are keepers. Take, for example, Steve Jobs. Uh, he had a net worth of $10.2 billion. The CEO of Apple, you know, the, one of the biggest corporations of the world. He could have had anything he wanted. He was a billionaire growing in value every single day. He was a keeper. But then he died. Here was a man who gained the whole world... But if he didn't accept Christ, he is, he is not only lost all his money, but forfeit his soul. A keeper who lost. Keepers are losers, but losers are keepers. If we lose our life for Jesus, then we will save it. We'll get to keep it. But if you believe Jesus is the Christ, then you have to be prepared to lose your whole life. Now, that means not just living like a Christian on Sundays, but serving Jesus all day, every day. Now, that means loving and caring for other people, even when it's inconvenient for you. Even if you're tired and you just want to go home. No, no, you put off your own plans to encourage someone else. Now, losing your life means that the way you speak ought to be different from people around you. Now, not to complain or condemn or put people down, but to speak words of encouragement and love. Uh, losing your life means being self-controlled with what you do on the internet. You know, your Facebook page should make it obvious that your life is not your own. The internet's one of the best ways we can make Christ known. Losing your life means that you don't view your paycheck as something you deserve for you to use however you want. No, it's actually a gift from God to be used for God and the work of the gospel. Losing your life, losing your whole life means having that conversation about Jesus, even if it's uncomfortable or if you think that it's a waste of time. We are to be unashamed of Jesus. So what part of your life are you holding on to? What are you not willing to lose for Jesus? Well, if you believe Jesus is the Christ, uh, well, then you have to be prepared to lose your whole life. 
And he, he is the Christ, the Christ who gave up his life for us and so it should be a joy to serve him. For when we lose our life for Christ, we get to keep it for eternity. Keepers are losers, but losers are keepers. Lose your life for Jesus, the Christ.